Sir, it's been rumored that your son was abducted by UFOs. Would you care to comment? Don't print that, son. If his mama reads that, she's just going to lose all hope. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 132 today, and we are back to Erica's choice. What did you pick for us today? I picked a doozy. I picked Raising Arizona from 1987, directed by Joel Cohen, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, with Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, Trey Wilson, William Forsythe, John Goodman, Francis McDormand, Sam McMurray, and Randall Tex Cobb. Infertile couple Ed and High decide to kidnap one of the Arizona quints because they can't have children of their own and then all hell breaks loose. So I've got a word of caution before we get started. Okay, what's that? Watch your butts. <laughs> I had a great time re-watching this and we've been laughing about it since then and it makes me feel like I made exactly the right choice right now and that was totally accidental. I don't know about you, but every so often, I need this movie in my life. Oh, yeah. I'm the same. I've probably watched this thing 20 times Easily. over the years. Yeah. I just need an infusion of that crazy sensibility, just the sheer number of gags and quotable lines, and there's just this goofy hope to it that is so fun and absolutely right. How did you come to this way back in 1987, or if that's when it was? Yeah, I can't remember at this point if I saw it in the theater, I think that I did, or with my mom and family on VHS. I'm pretty sure it was the theater. Regardless of that, I remember noticing, because I would have gone with my mom either way, how the adults in my life truly laughed with the film, and they were definitely on its wavelength, and that's something that we're going to talk about as we go. I saw this four times in the theater in its initial run. I loved it so much. Well, it was a big deal to me at the time, too, and that hasn't stopped. It feels just as fresh and exciting now as it did then. And there are a couple of aesthetic reasons why it was such a big deal to me at the time. It was the first time that I saw something that seemed like pop art that wasn't a cartoon, and I realized that you could tell a story in a completely different visual way than I was used to. So are you ready to get into it? Yeah. Well, the first 10 minutes of the film establish our entire world, all the characters, all through High's narration. Yeah, the film itself, overall, it's a bit of a genre survey, but even that is done in miniature here in this opening. There are elements of prison movie, romantic comedy. The Coens are obviously devoted students of film, and mainly it's a genre inversion this time. What we eventually come to is that it's a take on this whole criminal lovers on the run thing. They live by night, Bonnie and Clyde, Badlands. The biggest part of that inversion, though, being that this time it is this high-velocity comedy. The pace of the jokes is just amazing. His Girl Friday may be another antecedent on that count. Good point. 
it's similarly quick like that. But this is a double comic whammy because as opposed to His Girl Friday, I don't think there is one single setup in Raising Arizona, at least the first time, that goes where you expect it to or resolves itself in any recognizable way based on what you've seen in your life up until now. The cumulative effect of all that, it's probably the main way that Raising Arizona stood out to me. It may have hints of certain genres and exhibit a metatextual awareness of certain techniques, but overall the impact is one of complete originality. And that's what I mean. Those things that I had had access to in my life up to that point, nothing compared to this. And then you compare it to other titles in their filmography. You've got Blood Simple and The Big Lebowski that can be lumped under the neo-noir umbrella. The Hudsucker Proxy is obviously all that influence from Sturgis, Capra, and Hawks. Miller's Crossing is basically a straight gangster picture. I said genre inversion earlier. You could say genre subversion, or maybe even more accurately, genre explosion. Because Raising Arizona, it blows all of that up, and it's essentially a one-movie genre unto itself. Well, coming back to it, I'm totally hooked from the very first moment seeing High. He's so gentle and endearing with that smitten face. He's also in prison, though, one of those repeat offenders, as we're told. Which, by the way, the parole board reminds me of everyone I used to see at the Western Sizzlin in Virginia when I was a kid. Yeah, that's something I relate to that I didn't know was in my future when I first saw it. The parole board makes Arizona feel a lot like Texas to me. Bolo ties, maybe? (laughs) Even with a big portrait of Barry Goldwater in the background, I basically just squint and pretend it's LBJ. I know they shot Blood Simple here in Austin. No Country for Old Men, that was essentially shot out around Marfa. So the scenes with the parole board, they constitute an unofficial Texas trilogy. Good point. Love it. (laughs) Well, the object of High's affection here is Ed, the cop. And once she's no longer engaged, there's a chance for him. The thing I think now when I watch this, High's narration, it's already telling us a bit about his character. And to me, it seems like he is fooling himself. We know it right away when he's describing the camaraderie in the joint. The visuals tell us that he sees something that's not there. But... With that, do you draw a distinction between unreliable narrator and dreamer? I guess I would have to fall with dreamer, but honestly, maybe because I'm a dreamer too, it seems like everything he's telling us is on the money somehow. Maybe that's just my opinion. Because he's talking about big concepts, and for me, he's all about love. And when he talks about love, and how much love there is to give in the world, I get him and I believe him. The thing I see that separates that a little bit for me is the use of this florid language that he employs all the time. It tells me more specifically about him that he is aspirational in a certain way. And so there's a buffer in his language that actually is his language that he uses between utter 100% reality and how he idealizes it. I think you're probably totally right, but you know I tend to be a little bit literal, so I pretty much just believe him as we go. Does that mean you ate sand? For real? You ate sand? (laughs) Yeah, we talked about this in the last episode with the narrow margin, how that is a quotable noir. You already brought it up here. This has to be high on the list of most quotable, probably up there with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, that sort of thing. I'm sure 
that I was pretty insufferable with this back in 1987. Me too. This and Heather's. Yeah. I could probably do the whole thing from memory right now. I'm sure some of my friends could do the same. It was really difficult to pick a scene. And the one that I chose was the one that, I mean, it's indelible. But at the same time, I think if you don't get it, and if you don't believe him, Nathan Arizona, at that time, then there's no reason for you to watch this movie. Yeah, I think you picked the perfect one because out of all the jokes in it, this is the combination of the best and the most underappreciated. Well, let's talk about best and underappreciated for a second. Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, so young, so early in their careers. Yeah, Nicolas Cage, he was probably at least a little bit of a known quantity to me then. But in retrospect, out of everything new that this movie gave us, is Holly Hunter the real find here? Is she that gift that still keeps on giving? Well, excuse me. That's both of them. Thank you very much. <laughs> Nicolas Cage continues to keep giving. Some may call it overacting. He calls it mega acting, which I believe. I think I only knew him before this from Valley Girl, probably. And then Moonstruck came after, which was another big deal for me. You hadn't seen Peggy Sue Got Married at that point? Oh, no, I had. You're right. I saw that in the theater. And I guess just another example of him creating this thing that if you're not on the wavelength for, you do not get. Well, I love here that Nicolas Cage's hair responds <laughs> to the stress level in every scene. And evidently... The relationship between Cage and the Coen brothers was not super great, only in terms of he's the kind of actor who offers suggestions and ad-libs, and they have a very tightly controlled set. And I think that when you understand the film as a complete world, everyone has to be on the literal same page at every moment. Otherwise, it just goes off kilter in the wrong way. Now, Holly Hunter, do you have other favorite performances of hers? The one that also made the biggest impression on me is also from 1987. Broadcast News is probably the tip top of the list along with this for me. How about you? The absolute same for me. I saw that one in the theater and I did save for my recommendation one of my other favorites of hers. But I'll keep that under wraps for a minute. Well, let's talk a little bit about that precision that you just brought up, especially in terms of the crafting of the language. It definitely tells me something about the creators, too, not just this world that they're building. The Coen brothers are definitely all about control. We've long heard stories about them going to great lengths to make sure their dialogue is spoken exactly as written. Their films are painstakingly storyboarded. And I think you're exactly right. It works best when they have collaborators that understand that and operate the same way. And I know he had trouble with them because he is just freewheeling. But he also got it too, Nicolas Cage did, which is why I think it works so well. I remember reading a story about the Coens in Rolling Stone in the summer of 1987, and I still think about an anecdote in it till this day. Nicolas Cage apparently fell while they were filming that fight scene with Tex Cobb, and he cut his hand, and he asked, generally addressing anyone on the set, does anyone have a Band-Aid? Or at least a Cure-Ad? <laughs> <laughs> which is a detail that I love. That buried itself in my brain. And I went back and I read that article this week after carrying that detail around in my head for the last 33 years. And it reminded me that the Coens have such a beautiful, intense, bitter disdain for studio executives. That was all it was about. 
So I can see why that was incredibly appealing to me at the time, as I was both angsty teenager and just beginning to find my way into the American indie scene of the mid to late 80s. All of those elements together, it was kind of a thunderbolt moment of, I have found my people. It also sort of confirms my suspicion that they've mainly been doing all this work for all these years just to make each other laugh. If Haley and I made movies together, that's what we'd do all the way to the bank. One of those hayseed banks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but the insular nature of all of that, it actually makes me feel good to think about. Your first and only responsibility as an artist is to please yourself. Anything else is called being on a committee. If an audience likes it, fine. If they don't, fine. Studio execs probably wouldn't have been too fond of me either. Now, my situation, I think, is the same as yours. I saw this first and then was made aware of Blood Simple and went back to it. Is that how you did it? Same for me, but there was a huge gap, actually, between those two. I didn't see Blood Simple until the 90s. Mm, I went back for it right away. It was kind of hard because everything is not making its way to Oklahoma small-town video stores, but I did manage to get a copy. I saw all of their other stuff in sequence from that point, and then Blood Simple came kind of late period for me. Well, now we come to the kidnapping proper, and there are a few things I love here. I love the baby point of view. I love high tiptoeing like a cartoon character. I love that he's ready to chicken out because the babies move so fast, but Ed is the resolute one. And they're both in love with this kid right away. By the way, every character in the film cries, except for Nathan Jr., I'm with high on this one. The kidnapping itself, this is a nightmare scenario. Babies are gross and weird. <laughs> they're always sticky and they're making bubbles somehow. I would have given up too. And those baby point of view shots, they are genius because they make him look even crazier. Sometimes like Groucho Marx even, which is a detail that I really enjoy. There's a really nice match that originates here with him pulling the baby out from under the crib and then Tex Cobb doing the same to him during their fight later. And this is a fight, too. And in each instance, Dad loses significantly. Let's talk about this premise for a second. Having a couple steal a baby is, on its face, kind of dark, I think. Slightly taboo, even. Was it just my idea around that time there seemed to be stories of people taking babies from hospitals and things like that? I don't know if there was a particular uptick in those statistics, but it happens all the time. If I just read a description of this to you, a couple, one of whom is a career criminal, one who has turned her back on her law enforcement career, steals a baby, and then are pursued by a bounty hunter who sees said baby as a payday no matter who pays him, while also dealing with a pair of escaped cons who in turn steal a baby from them, it sounds like a lifetime true story at best or at worst a situation that ends in disaster and probably bloodshed. Not hijinks ensuing. Right. From that description, it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine a version of this that looks like Malik's Badlands, with just a few extra wrinkles thrown in. It's every bit the crime film at its core that Blood Simple is. It's just that the Coen's ability to spin that into a non-stop laugh riot, L-A-F-F, -F, laugh, it's not just a testament to their writing skill and comic sensibilities. It is downright perverse, which I love. Well, even after these whirlwind circumstances, they're ready to try to settle into a normal and quiet family life, but that is not to be. 
When Hi and Ed bring Nathan Jr. home, we had a couch just like that. Did you have a couch like that? Yep. And while I'm thinking about that scene, is there any better metaphor for mounting anxiety and encroaching pressure than a camera on a self-timer? Well, as if Hi has called up a firestorm from his dreams, his old prison buddies, Gail and Evel, break out of jail. Not just break out of jail, but come from the primordial ooze, which I love too. Literally rising up from the ground in a storm of mud and rain and sewage to come calling on their buddy high for a place to lay low for a while. Gail, who is John Goodman here, he's immediately suspicious of this setup, and it's clear if there's danger, it's going to come from them. It doesn't all come from them. He's also conjured up another vision. Or is it a vision? The lone biker of the apocalypse, Tex Cobb here. Is this just a dream or is this something else? It seemed pretty real to me, like a fury prepared to rain down hell on them. The other touch that I love here, just one more unexpected thing that pulled me further into this all these years. I love that she is singing murder ballads as a lullaby to Nathan Jr., I recorded a version of this song, actually, down in the Willow Garden. It's on my SoundCloud. Maybe I'll post a link to the Facebook group later. Uh, it's definitely going to be one of the links in my show post, so get ready. Well, speaking of those sorts of touches and this idea of what's a dream, what's not a dream, what is surreal, what is real, I want to talk about this whole concept again of the script and the dialogue and the world that they've created. Because I think that there are clearly some people born to this dialogue, like John Goodman. I've seen this aesthetic called High Hick, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it seems pretty apt. And I'm one of those people who is certainly on the wavelength for this world. And the dialect itself, it's a made-up one. It's sort of a hybrid of local stuff, what would the assumed reading be for these characters, magazines, the Bible, anything else in between. But it seems clear, it definitely seemed clear at the time that you were either on this wavelength or you weren't. And one of the problems that people had was this oddball invented dialect. Roger Ebert, for example, I can't even believe this, really did not like this movie it seemed like the problem was the invented world wasn't surreal enough, that it was unconvincing, that it was distracting, that these people all talk the same way. And it clearly wasn't something that he was used to hearing. He also said what the movie needed more than anything else was velocity, which I know oh you would have a problem with. He said basically the movie can't decide if it exists in the real world of trailer parks and 7-Elevens, or in a fantasy world in another dimension. Well, the specificity of that language, there are so many great examples of it. How high refers to their surroundings as suburban Tempe. <laughs> that whole sequence describing how his seed could find no purchase. It's like music to me. And knowing how specific the Coens are about line readings, it really makes one of those parole board scenes in particular doubly funny to me. We got a name for people like you, High. That name is recidivism. The best part of that joke is that it should be recidivist. Grammar is the victim of this mangled construction here. There are little things like that just threaded all the way through this. But we get all these examples, like you referenced with Roger Ebert. The criticism that I've often heard, too, 
is that with such effort spent dedicated to crafting this language that the Coens forgo creating actual human beings, that they condescend to their characters or even hold them in contempt. And I think that is just patently false. First, in this case, the characters are all comic exaggerations. They are not regular human beings. And like with many things, I think these critics are giving away as much about themselves as anything else. Apparently they don't have any family like this, and boy, yeah. <laughs> I sure do. Just because they haven't encountered people like this doesn't mean they're not out there. I'm in the same boat as you. They are out there. And if you're a person that spends a fair amount of time listening to the sound and meaning of the language that people use, you know this. Here's the thing that drives me the craziest. If, as a critic, you are sitting in the theater thinking, no one in a trailer in the middle of nowhere Arizona would have these poetic flourishes in their speech. Who's really the jerk in that situation? The Coens, who at least give their characters language as an aspirational buffer between their ideal selves and their modest living situation? Or you, thinking, no one like this talks like that. Take a hike, jackass. I talk like that. And I probably talk like that, at least in part because of this movie. Nothing that I had seen before this took such delight in language this way, and it made a huge impression on me. Well, I was reminded again just lately, and this is all because of you, that there are plenty of wordsmiths out there who create something only they can create, and it somehow sounds universal. And that's because we were watching a short set of Vic Chestnut, and it seems like he exemplifies this concept to me. You are from where you're from. You talk the way you talk. It's not exactly the same as I do. But it recalls something so deep in my memory or just our collective consciousness that it seems so real and beautiful and elevating and yet down to earth. Vic Chestnut is a great example because you listen to how he speaks and the diction and the lexicon he uses in his songwriting. It's so unique, but it's not a put on. This is a lifetime of him being that way that has led to this point. And also, it's so universally Georgia when I listen to it at the same time. So it's a great example to respond to this critical line. Contrary to that, you can pay strict attention to language and character development at the same time. And I think the Coens do. In fact, in most cases, I see this linguistic precision as a tribute to these characters, not condescension, because you do not toil this long and hard over characters that you care nothing for. The things they say, the way they say them, all of that is crucial, and the Coens go to great lengths to get that just right. I said just a bit ago that it's like music to me. I meant that in the sense that it's pleasing to my ear. But I realize now, talking about Vic Chestnut and all these other things, it applies in a compositional sense too. You don't make a symphony by being careless with notes. And, conversely, some of these things are just honest. We can't ignore the fact that some of these characters deserve some roasting. The law of averages, that applies to fictional characters just as much as actual human beings. Like it or not, a lot of people are dummos. Like the Coens pointed out when they were talking about Fargo, the average criminal is not a mastermind. Quite the opposite, in fact. That's why so many of them get caught. Another example of the perfection of this script is this scene of Nathan Arizona holding the press conference, pleading for his son's return, and the FBI and the local police have taken over his home but don't have any leads. 
And for me, I don't know about for you, there is no single better, more quotable, effortlessly hilarious sequence than this one. And it is so small and so short, and it's perfect. I hang a lot of that on Trey Wilson. And that may just be because I'm biased because I love the guy so much, but he is the perfect vehicle to deliver every bit of this dialogue. Now that UFO joke that we did in the beginning, in the opening scene, maybe one of my favorites in the entire movie, do you feel like that is an example of the kind of punching down that some people criticize them for? That and the biblical names of Dot and Glenn's kids, all the women in the supermarket chase in their robes and curlers. Do all of these things feel like that to you? They feel like what I see on a daily basis now. There was a woman in curlers the other day. I couldn't believe it. I hadn't seen that for such a long time. The only thing I can answer to that is it feels ripped from the headlines because my Aunt Gail moved to Roswell, New Mexico from Virginia, lives in a trailer, and it was all to be closer to the whole UFO culture. Wait a minute, because she's an adherent to all of that? Exactly how did she get there? She's fascinated by it and always has been. She wants to believe. (laughs) And yes, I think it's ridiculous. And so does she. She often pokes fun at the other people there who are crazier than she is. I don't know if that's possible. Uh, No, there's a whole lot of them. Believe (laughs) me. I've been to the conventions. I've been to the Roswell UFO Museum. Compelling evidence is what I was told (laughs) by one of the docents there. And I've got another example for you. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. My Aunt Betty, way back when, loaded up all the kids in the car, took them to see the Lord of the Rings, the original one, the Bakshi one, and was so mad because she thought it was going to be a wrestling movie, not a cartoon about some wizards or whatever. So she was probably a big fan of Mid-South, just like I was when I was a kid. Hell yes, it was on TV all the time. And then she could go down to the Roanoke Civic Center and yell at everybody. Yeah, I went to the Great Plains Coliseum for my action. So it doesn't feel like punching down to me, I guess, is what is obvious to us. We are part of that. But also, if you want to back up and look at a more grand example, Tati, he played on stereotypes too when he made all of his comedies. And I never felt like he was poking fun either in any sort of cruel way. And one of the things to me that illustrates that, Trey Wilson in this sequence you're talking about, his use of raison d'etre, that is exactly at the opposite end of that. But then it swings back to this notes, referencing JR like the TV show, and like your Aunt Gail, calling everyone else around her crazy, the way they refer to their robbery target as a hayseed bank, the irony of that. But then El Dorado is another way that they refer to that. It's a very specific spectrum. And it's exactly that unique world that you were talking about when all your characters read is magazines, and the Bible, and I would also throw in whatever classic literature they were forced to read in school. Ultimately, I think the Coens think that the world is ridiculous. No one is spared the mockery. I think it's their instinct to circle their two little wagons together against everything else on the outside, which also sets them up to be easy targets for criticism, in a way. Is it just my imagination, for instance, or has it become fashionable in certain cinephile circles lately to dislike or look down your nose at the Coens. I know the critical consensus has long been that they're kind of stuck in between. They're not serious artists, but they're not big box office either, at least not blockbuster big. But it's moved from the critical establishment, I think, and it's crept into the general public's conversations too, now that everyone can put their opinions in an easily accessible public forum like social media. 
It seems like there's definitely a subset of film fans that treat them as if they've worn out their welcome or even worse, like they've been frauds all along. Do you pick up on any of that in what you read? I don't. I guess I'm just not reading anything in that vein at all. But I'm going to give a big raspberry to it (laughs) right now. Maybe that's manifested itself, though, a little bit in my viewing even, because way back when, these were can't-miss events, these movies. Absolutely. In theaters, when they came out. Everyone. And now I still haven't seen The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, for instance, so I'm behind on my viewing with them. And it couldn't be more accessible in terms of our access to it, not the story itself, since I haven't seen it either. Their career path, though, it feels to me like they're just following in the footsteps of classic filmmakers they admire. Sturgis and Capra could have easily been described this way, though Capra had more commercial success. I want to talk about yet another aspect of the film that I love, and that's the music. And I mention it here because when we're seeing Leonard Smalls, a.k.a. Randall Tex Cobb, who's on the trail of the outlaws in this hellstorm, the music here is especially incredible. Do you mean just in terms of bombast and how grandiose it is? It's gorgeously produced, and so that leads me to Carter Burwell. We talked about Down in the Willow Garden, and you have a special connection to that. You also have a connection to the rest of the score. I don't know if you know about What's it. What's that? That connection is John R. Crowder, originally from Fairfax, Oklahoma. <laughs> he was the yodeler, though he called it more like hollering, which I particularly love. Yeah, that's what they call it in Fairfax for sure. So originally Carter Burwell had this Polish yodeler. But it ended up sounding just specifically Eastern European, which was not going to be right for the film. So instead, he got what he called an honest-to-God oaky to do the yodeling. And the first piece of music that he mocked up for the Coens was this Spanish rock opera that accompanied the biker from hell. He also didn't know any banjo players at the time, so he got Ben Freed, who was the Coens optometrist, to play on the score. How do you not know banjo players, especially if you're a musician? Well, he started actually in the punk rock scene, by the way. me too, but I know tons of banjo (laughs) players. He talked about not having an affinity for country music Mm. before this. So this is the film that got him in that direction. I guess I'm that Okie that comes from half punk rock, half Woody Guthrie, so that just seems natural to me. John Crowder, by the way, toured with Leonard Cohen, Waylon Jennings... A lot of other people, he's actually retired now. He's a mole farmer. That's such an oaky thing to (laughs) raise things that literally every other farmer in the world wants to get rid of. I love that. One other thing I want to mention here while we're talking about this sequence. I was a huge boxing fan growing up, so I was already a fan of Tex Cobb, and I was super excited about his inclusion here. He is literally one of the toughest guys I have ever seen step in the ring. He famously went 15 rounds with Larry Holmes, who was the world champion at the time. That was about that was so savage that it made Howard Cosell quit broadcasting boxing altogether. Whoa. Cobb just wouldn't go away. He just stood in front of Holmes for 15 rounds and took it. Sparring partners and other opponents he faced, they said he had a head like a slab of concrete. Who won the Holmes-Cobb fight? Oh, Holmes, going away. Oh, God, Holmes, okay. in fact led up towards the end because he thought he was literally going to kill him. This was a weird time in boxing. This was just after Ray Mancini and Duke Kukim had their fight where Duke Kukim went into a coma and died. 
I think that was 12 days or so before this bout. Right around that time, too, there was also the fight between Aaron Pryor and Alexis Arguello, another one of my favorites that was incredibly savage. I'll stick to Mid-South Wrestling. Thank you. <laughs> when you listen to it, when he delivers his lines, you can definitely hear when Tex Cobb talks just how many times his nose has been broken. Absolutely. Anyway, moving on from my Sports Illustrated subscription there. You're right about all these little details. There are so many little touches that I love that are just in the margins of this thing. One example in particular, when High is loitering and he steals that newspaper, I like to think that it's intentional that you can see a Radio Shack sign in the background. I feel like that's an inside joke for the Coens that's also on my wavelength. Because they're so meticulous about everything that nothing makes its way on screen by accident. They could have framed that differently so that it was nothing but an anonymous strip mall in the background, but they didn't. And neat little Easter eggs pop up all over their films. And a lot of those things in this case, they are associated with the Snopes brothers. Just a sidestep from Snopes... That name may be the Cohen's first oblique reference to William Faulkner that we would see return much more specifically in Barton Fink. That P-O-E-O-P-E graffiti in the bathroom when the Snotes are cleaning up after they break out of prison. Those are the recall codes from Dr. Strangelove. Small's name, that's another fun literary nod. Lenny Small from Of Mice and Men. It's no accident in Raising Arizona that he destroys a rabbit. He just does it on purpose and with a grenade. My single favorite not hidden detail would be one of Glenn and Dot's kids, the little girl with the bandage over oh, part of her head I love in the that eye. Kid so She's much. my favorite one. <laughs> well, speaking of Glenn and Dot's visit, this is chaos. They are those parents who are the cause of the riot and don't realize it. As cartoonish and over the top as the Snotes brothers and Smalls are, Dot and Glenn, they are equal villains in my eyes. The way of life that they represent with this constant consumption and churning that is felt so acutely by everyone but them, everyone that comes in contact with them, and they don't acknowledge it or even realize it, that is equal to or greater than, to me, the Snote's bad influence or Small's looming retribution. The thing that I see these days that bothers me the most that they represent too, that they specifically speak, is... When the kid gets too big to cuddle, it's time to have another one. Yeah, they're awful. And Dot, she is ten times worse than that camera timer in terms of anxiety. Just the sheer American obliviousness of it all. It's every bit as awful as what the others have to offer. She is right, though. You do have to get your dip tet. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And now High confesses to Glenn, things are closing in. And I love how Glenn looks both ways before... He offers his solution to High's marital woes. They're in the middle of nowhere. It's a little bit of wife swapping to take the edge off, to ease the tension of High's new life. I do want to clarify with what I was saying earlier about how awful they are that I wasn't referring to this swinging thing as a part of their unappealing behavior. Kink shaming, taking cheap shots at polyamory, alternative lifestyles, anything else under that umbrella, however you want to characterize it, that's the one example in this of lazy humor to me. It's low-hanging fruit to get laughs from the vanilla crowd. You see a lot of it in true crime stuff, especially. So I encounter this mindset a fair amount, and it bugs me. Anyway, earlier I was just referring to their general insensitivity and boorishness. Because I definitely don't think of the Coen brothers as being sex positive. You know, that's <laughs> not at the top of the list. 
And Dot's a tiger in the sack, which doesn't sound too bad to me. Well, maybe I'm just being overly sensitive because his kids thought it was funny. <laughs> well, instead, High turns to his old life as a way to take the edge off instead. In this next section, it is the amazing convenience store robbery for the Huggies. This robbery slash chase scene, it blew my mind when I first saw it. I think it's interesting, though, that the impetus for the whole thing is that Ed draws a line between stealing a baby somehow and robbing a convenience store. This thing is just sheer perfection. Ed leaves him behind. There's the clerk with the braces and the gigantic gun, the chase through the neighborhood, through houses and yards, the dog point of view. And there's just tons of gunfire. It's insane, incredibly memorable. One of my favorite details, little Nathan Jr. would be an accessory to the crime. The score with this banjo and the yodeling that we've talked about, it's the perfect music for this. The mic drop that is, son, you got a penny on your head. Never fails to elicit a huge laugh. The sound of the gunshots during this chase, it's one of the loudest bits of sound design, most exaggerated bits that I've ever heard. Everything just really amplifies the cartoon quality of all this. I know you do have one problem with this sequence, which I never noticed until you pointed it out to me. Should I ruin it for everybody? Do you want me to do that? <laughs> well, you ruined it for me. Now you get to ruin it for everybody. Okay, fair enough, I guess. The finale of the scene as he is directing her back to where the Huggies are so that he can pick them up, as the car speeds toward the Huggies and he opens the door, it is incredibly obvious that the Huggies are so tall that they will not fit under the door. Yet, the immediate cut to after is High scooping them up like they have slid under the door right into his waiting arms. The only beef we have with the film and Barry Sonnenfeld's amazing camera work here, right? Oh, exactly. I don't want to fault that at all, because if you hadn't noticed it before, Barry Sonnenfeld's camera work is as much a key to this whole thing as this carefully crafted dialogue. This, even with that little bit at the end that's kind of a false note for me, it was really the scene that sticks with me as what made me realize we are dealing with something altogether different here. Everything is firing on all its bonkers cylinders in this scene. Exact same for me. Well, speaking of accessories and bad influences, back to crime here for a second. Gail is trying to convince High to go on a bank robbery with he and Evel. And we see High writing his goodbye letter to Ed and the baby. While we then see what every other character is doing and the storm that's about to catch up with him. Two things that always strike me about this part of the film. His goodbye letter montage that is so tender and melancholy. And then... I am surprised here every time when I am reminded that this whirlwind has all taken place in just a couple of days. Yeah, no velocity, my Aunt Fanny. Well, everything is starting to come down on high. Glenn is there threatening blackmail when he figures out who Nathan Jr. is. Smalls has made a proposition to Nathan Arizona to get the boy back. And things are getting further out of control. The brothers are going to take Nathan Jr. And there's a whole big fight to subdue High. My favorite detail here while everything is being completely destroyed is Evel hunkering down with the baby in the bathroom, covering his little ears. Yeah, as genius as they are with the language, 
I also really loved the way that they highlighted visual details that no one, literally no one, had ever shown me before. This fight in the trailer is the perfect distilled example of that. Just the general setting details, they are all right, and you don't know that, maybe, unless you have spent time in a setting like that yourself. John Goodman hitting his head on that shitty globe lamp, especially Nicolas Cage scraping his knuckles on that awful stuff that they put on the ceiling. No one had done anything like this before. All that was missing for this for me was macrame. But the brothers subdue high, they take off with Nathan Jr., and they are sitting in the fabled catbird seat. I love to drive. <laughs> you sure said something there. It's a perfectly realized detail again. Yeah, all of these characters, they are so sympathetic, even though they're committing ostensibly crimes. The Coens definitely achieve their goal of making something 180 degrees from Blood Simple. The Snotes boys, they're good-hearted. They love this baby. Even though, as they're singing, they realize, oh, they've forgotten <laughs> the little guy in his car seat, possibly on the roof of the cars where they last saw him. Was this the same for you in retrospect going back? Does this gas station robbery have echoes of the coin flip scene in No Country for Old Men? I guess it does. I tend to think of the guy behind the counter being in both scenes, though he's not. Much less dark in this one, a lot funnier. And then also the fact that they're going to call him Gale Jr. now is really the best detail here. Well, so much of the Coen Brothers filmography, it is a variation on people making a series of bad choices that beget worse choices. In most of those cases, though, there are negative associations with their motives and behaviors. They do it for greed, for selfishness, for cruelty. Is this the most pure, if misguided, set of motivations for Coen characters? I think so. Ed talking about that fool's paradise that they were living in, <laughs> it was all based on love. And she's talking about now they can't live together anymore. I guess there's Tim Robbins in the Hudsucker Proxy. The dude in the Big Lebowski is probably on this side of the fence as well. I think I might have a controversial opinion about the Big Lebowski. I'm not the world's biggest fan of that one. How about you? It's somewhere near the top of the middle chunk for me. I obviously love all of the Chandler-esque parts of it, but it may be that it is the thing that I see referenced so much that I just developed this knee-jerk reaction to it, like, eh, hurt enough. I think there's a ton to love in it, John Goodman specifically, but I wanted so much to love it and it didn't end up ticking all my boxes. And I think about the criticism applied to Raising Arizona, specifically with Julianne Moore's character. She's the one who takes me completely out of the movie, turns me completely off. To me, in that film, she's the only one who talks and acts the way she does. So I just wish her entire storyline had been removed. This whole exaggerated response to realism that she performs, I think it actually ties in with my recommendation later, so I'm not as averse to it. I think you would have just rather watched this as a big, long, extended episode of The Rockford Files. Ooh, I never thought about that. More fingers, less Julianne Moore. But back to this film and everything that's hurtling towards the end. Yeah, this realization that Ed comes to that is so melancholy and hilarious to me at the same time. You and me is just a fool's paradise. This is her rock bottom. She has arrived at utter clarity. 
Now, the film itself is largely High's story, largely from his perspective. But do you feel like the proceedings are just as much a test of Ed's character? It makes me think about, again, all these examples of love or the lack thereof and those holes that we seek to fill. Maybe that's a reason I keep coming back to this, because it does work on those other levels, even if those are hilarious. And those layers are hilarious, because we come to LaGrange for the bank robbery proper, and this linguistic music just continues to play on. They don't want to see anybody bipedal. And then, again, flipping back to the visual jokes, Goodman frantically wiping the blue dye off the windshield at varying speeds. Wipes big, wipes little. Wipes a little slower, wipes faster. This is brilliant. It is so fine-tuned because you realize it's not half as funny if he just wipes at the same speed throughout. Great comic instincts. Well, at the bank, this is where we have the big showdown. Smalls is there to bring everything to an end. There's this huge fight. And my favorite note is when High just throws up in complete fear. (laughs) (laughs) And then when High says, I'm sorry, as Smalls realizes that High's pulled the pin from the grenade right before he blows up. Or when Ed, with no fear, confronts Smalls. That's another of my favorite moments, how fearless she is in defense of that baby. It's a quality of a true mother, and it's the thing that most convinces me that she has judged herself too harshly in the scene before. Now, this matching tattoo that they have, does this indicate to you father and son or something else? I start to think about brothers somehow or alternate versions of a thing. Because the tattoo that means more to me right there is that mama didn't love me one. Again, thinking about those holes that we have to fill. These paths that you can go down when you're trying to make something of yourself that was better than the model that you maybe had. I think there are a couple of things that could potentially point to making a case for the father angle. A big fatherly hug is literally how he's going to kill him. And then you've got this idea that's gone on through the centuries, that the son must kill the father, at least metaphorically, to become a whole man, the man he was meant to be. But ultimately, I think the age difference isn't great enough to be father and son. I've gone back and forth on this over the years, but ultimately, I think High gives us the most straightforward clue earlier in the movie when he hints that he has summoned Smalls somehow. Smalls is literally a physical manifestation of Mrs. Arizona's grief, over having her child stolen, combined with High's guilt. They share a tattoo because he's part of High. The bad part that gets blown up, which allows him to then move on and be a good husband and father. Well, they make the right decision. They return Nathan Jr. to his home. Nathan Sr. interrupts them, figures it all out. High's hair is back to its lowest point, signaling that everything is okay. And Nathan Sr. gives them some good advice here. Instead of breaking up, keep trying. And it's all about love and togetherness ultimately here. As silly as the whole thing is, this is unexpectedly touching every time I see it too. Including that dream of the future when nobody is screwed up. They're making a better world. Yeah, that coda, it ends the whole thing with the perfect tone. Well, now that we're at the end, I think that This could have been one of your choices, too. 
Oh, absolutely. I think this one is just as important for each of us. 1987 was quite possibly the most pivotal year in my movie-going life. I don't know if it's the same for you. You were a little younger than me. I was 12 versus your 17. Yeah, exactly. So I had just crossed that threshold of no one under 17 without parent or guardian. I had always had a lot of leeway with video store rentals. My parents did not police me in that way. But this was different. This was the first time I could choose literally any theatrical experience I wanted and go all by myself. So I made the most of what I had available, which wasn't much in Southwest Oklahoma then, but it was mine. Angel Heart, which I saw multiple times. This, Barfly, Broadcast News with Holly Hunter again, like I said, Full Metal Jacket. I had just turned 17 and was literally only beginning to get an inkling of what was out there in the world of film. It's 30-odd years later now, and I have a lot of conflicting feelings these days about things. For instance, when you are that young and green, it seems so much more possible to make constant discoveries. You're a big, empty vessel just waiting to be filled up, and you could be experiencing near-constant watershed moments. And that's what this movie really represents to me, that period that felt full of boundless discovery. Thinking about it now, I can still remember what that felt like. It was thrilling, and I was voraciously taking in everything I could. That feeling is a lot harder to come by now for me. How about you? It's the same, though maybe with our age difference. You bring me so many new things, discovering Jalo, for example. So I guess I have enough holes that I feel like there's going to be something new and wonderful that's waiting for me to discover out there. And I haven't been beaten down by life the way you have. (laughs) Well, it still happens, thankfully, for me, too. My brilliant career just a few weeks ago, Bertrand Mandico's filmography last year, I still chase it and occasionally catch it. And I hope that never goes away. And that's another of these contradictions that I often find myself dealing with. I want to ask you two questions and see if your answers are the same as mine. One, in the last five years of doing this show, have your horizons broadened? Do you feel like you're a better viewer? Do you feel like you've learned a lot about movies during this time? I do. And at the same time, I think I could always be more open to paying more attention as I'm watching. Well, that leads me right into the second part, because number two, I was going to ask, Now that you've seen all that and been so immersed in this, how much do you feel like you actually know about film? It's so hard to say. There's the ineffable magic of it, and then there's the very quotidian crafting of it. Because then we'll talk about Agnes Varda, for example. And she's endlessly inspiring. And she'll make me look at something in a second way that I never would have without her prompting. And so if I had never heard her thoughts on something or had the little nudge, think about this, I would have just gone on in my life possibly with never noticing something that way. I was thinking about that question a little bit differently, I think. My answer boils down to, I've seen so much now that it only makes me realize that I know nothing. It's the tip of the iceberg. And that's what continues to spur this chase, actually. I can never know enough. As often as I have been surprised, delighted, fallen in love, disgusted, felt my pulse quicken, like you, the only thing that I'm sure of is that 
there's got to be another moment like that out there for me. I just have to keep after it, stay open to it, not lose my intellectual curiosity or my desire especially to have my boundaries tested. If that ever goes away, I'm done for. Fill out my do not resuscitate papers for me right then and there because I won't be living a life that means anything to me at all at that point. And my experience with film, it comes into play in another way as well, at least with respect to Raising Arizona. All of the Coen's movies, this one may be least of all, but it too, are always very aware of the things that came before them and influenced them. They rely on the audience to be aware of those connections too, I think, to get the most out of the movie. So, thinking back, the way I viewed this in 1987 was in a state of complete ignorance with regard to a lot of those things, and yet it's not necessary to enjoy it. I thought it was hilarious and ingenious, so what was I reacting to? What did I innately recognize in this? And how different is the way I watch it now? Do you feel like your approach to it has evolved with what you've learned since then, or do you revert to your 12-year-old reptilian brain every time? I think I maybe do some reverting. It does, though, make me think, again, back to sort of the negative criticism and the Roger Ebert stuff. I think that the film invites you to be from somewhere or having been somewhere, but at the same time doesn't make any apologies if maybe you can't get past that point. It sticks with its ethos and allows you to then go along with yours. Well, I know that I definitely fill in the text a lot more, obviously. I can't help but do that based on what I have taken in since then. But I certainly do appreciate it still as a much more elementary pleasure. And speaking of elementary pleasures, how about a recommendation? Do you have one for us? Let's go back to my 22-year-old reptilian brain. I picked A Life Less Ordinary from 1997. I saw this in the theater, too. Me, too. Directed by Danny Boyle, with Ewan McGregor, Cameron Diaz, Holly Hunter again, and Delroy Lindo. Oh, I love Delroy Lindo so much. It's a fairly convoluted, odd story about a kidnapping and two angels who meddle to bring the kidnapper and kidnappee together. So this was also a follow-up. If you think of Blood Simple having come before and made a statement and then Raising Arizona making a different statement, Danny Boyle had made two pretty successful films, Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, setting this specific tone. This one instead was very unsuccessful. In what sense do you mean? Commercially or artistically? Commercially for sure, and people said that that was because it was artistically unsuccessful. I was inspired to recommend this because of the idea of being on something's wavelength. I think I'm on the same wavelength as this movie. And Holly Hunter created this distinctive character, and I think it was through her that I found such an affinity for the story and the dialogue, which is very stylized. I'm also a Ewan McGregor fan, which doesn't hurt, and it was filmed in Utah, so when I saw this in Idaho in my 20s, it spoke to this element of my fantasy life. Because you wanted to leave Boise behind for the glitter of Salt Lake City? Because I wanted to launch into dream sequences <laughs> where I'm singing under the sea on a bar top. It works for me. I haven't seen it in a long time, though, at this point. Though I had seen it since I saw it the first time, but that's been now a large gap. So I might be totally off of it now, but I still remember specific chunks of dialogue and how Holly Hunter moves and what she wore, so a lot has stayed with me. How about your recommendation? 
Well, I am going with Vampire's Kiss from 1989, and that's directed by Robert Bierman, starring Nicolas Cage, Maria Conchita Alonso, Jennifer Beals, and Elizabeth Ashley. And I think Nicolas Cage said this is his favorite film? Yeah, frequently. Anytime it's brought up, he loves this movie, and so do I. It's about a literary agent, already mentally unbalanced, who descends further into madness once he believes he's been bitten by a vampire. Three things, three big reasons that I love it. Almost all of this coming to me in retrospect. One, Nicolas Cage was doing far more than I gave him credit for at the time, and far more than most people wanted. I knew that somehow, that it was unique. How could you not, I guess, when you look at it? But there was no way for me to put it in the context of the career that was to come. Two, Jennifer Beals was making choices that set her apart. She wasn't just content to coast on Flashdance, doing some variation of that over and over again. And three, I think a little bit at least, this prefigured my appreciation of Rainer Werner Fassbender, and to a lesser degree, Uli Lomel. Because this has a similar kind of mannered coldness that other people might find alienating, but that I just love. And that thing I was saying earlier about artists doing things for their own amusement and edification... This was very much that for Nicolas Cage. He said in 1988 that it was something that he had to do whether or not people liked it. It is the Rosetta Stone for all the wonderful eccentricity that we now associate with his entire career. It's maybe the most outrageous that he's ever been. I don't know that he's ever eclipsed this. So I love it for that reason, if nothing else. So once again, that's two great recommendations, A Life Less Ordinary and Vampire's Kiss. And that brings us to the end of episode 132. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level, that gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon in the Fatal Films Podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, and Jeff Duncanson all of our noir stalwarts that have been enjoying the last two episodes we did. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so that we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.